Well, it gives me great joy to say, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We have made it to chapter 3. Very excited to begin this chapter. We're only going to get through one verse today, though, so don't judge me. Um, This is uh, increasingly just the most incredible book that just pulls us in at every level. Every phrase is drenched with wonderful truth that I think we will drink richly from even this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to be looking at perspective from prison, learning to endure difficulties. We find this tucked away in some assumptions and presumptions in Paul's words in the first verse of chapter 3. Let me read that for us. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And we're going to stop right there. Perspective may be one of your most valuable possessions. Now, let me say that again. Perspective might just be one of your most valuable possessions. For example, ask a woman to take nine months, gain a considerable amount of weight in that short time, be sick and miserable and sore and experience back pain, leg pain, joint pain, and culminate this experience with a day of intense pain. This would not be likely unless there were a baby at the end. Or maybe this, say no to all your favorite foods and be intensely hungry for weeks at a time. This would be unlikely unless the reward of losing weight and being in better shape were at the end of that. Or think of a professional football player. I read recently that a professional football player spends about 100 hours of practice during the year for every one hour of a game. Then there's physical therapy. Do we have any physical therapists among us? Okay, I can speak freely. Oh, we do have one. I'm sorry. Um, We love physical therapists. (laughs) Several years ago, I broke my arm at the elbow and uh, had several weeks of physical therapy. And here's what I learned about physical therapy. They find whatever hurts and they make you do it repeatedly every week. And it gets you better. So we are grateful for the physical therapist. But here's the point. None of that pain would be endurable without the perspective that it was bringing you good in the end. Perspective. I love this pulpit, this sacred desk as we call it. When Justin Moldrup was showing me, uh, he crafted this, handcrafted it, uh, as you know, in his, in his garage for us. And uh, we designed it, we took a year to design it, the angle, the height, um, the, um, are you laughing with me or at me? Um, <clears throat> every angle, the, the fact that the, the wire runs through the legs, and the, everything was, was really well thought out. Well, we went to pick the wood. This is made of Kansas walnut. And uh, when we picked the wood out, he was picking the wood out, and I, I got to confess, I thought, he said, this is great wood, and I thought, pretty ugly to me. It was dirty and sandy and had stuff all, dust all over it. And I I thought, I I didn't see anything that he saw. 
but it was beautiful in the end. His perspective saw something that I didn't see. How you view difficulty and hardship is a matter of perspective. And as we drop into Ephesians chapter 3, Paul provides a subtle but powerful lesson on perspective in the simple way he describes himself. So for our study this morning, I want us to sit in the apostles' classroom and learn more about the power of perspective. Now, as we noted at the very beginning of our study, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians from prison in Rome. He's incarcerated. And for this imprisonment, he's under house arrest with a Roman guard stationed over him. But how Paul views his freedom being taken away, his difficult circumstance is incredibly instructive, and it's almost as a throwaway as he's just introducing himself. So for today, we're going to get no further than this first verse and simply look at his statement of imprisonment. Because there is a world of practical implication and application for us here. As we note his perspective, I think we can discover for ourselves three concentrations for enduring difficulties. Three concentrations for enduring difficulties. Now, I've shared with you before that entering my fifth decade of of ministry, I've had lots of opportunity to shepherd and to counsel This is what I think anyone who's shepherded people would would let you know. Let me take this opportunity to to ask you to be a part of our Sunday school series right now on soul care, and we're talking about these very issues. But I find that the people who line up who want biblical counseling, who want to be cared for and shepherded, hardly ever anyone sits down in my office and says, hey, Rick, I need some perspective because life has never been better. It's so awesome. Of all the money I want, all my relationships are intact, no conflict. They love me at work. They love me on the soccer field. They love me at the gym. Everybody loves me. This is just the greatest life. You want to talk about it? I've never had, and if you want to have that meeting with me this week, please, please come and have that meeting with me this week. Never have that. But I do find whether it's friends or opportunities to shepherd, that it's difficulty that brings us to the point of seeking perspective, seeking God. Can I ask you just a simple question? When is your prayer life really turned up to volume 10? When things are difficult? When things are going well? It might let you know a little bit why God keeps the accelerator on our lives by keeping things this side of heaven in a way that we know it's this side of heaven. So let's look at these three concentrations from Paul's simple introduction to himself, three concentrations for enduring difficulty. The first is this, selfless intercession. And it might not be obvious at first, but just bear with me for a moment. Selfless intercession is in the first part of verse 1, for this reason. Now, one of my lifetime studies has become the letters of the Apostle Paul. He is one of my heroes. I, the longer I live, the more I love the Apostle Paul. He has many characteristics as a writer. He's a clever wordsmith. He's a creative illustrator. He writes with meticulous legal logic. He incorporates the genius of an Old Testament scholar. 
But there's another characteristic of Paul that his, in his writing that, that is obvious if you read him for very much uh, at all. It's, it's, it's obvious in Romans, it's obvious in Philippians, it's obvious in Colossians, it's obvious in, in Ephesians. It's not exactly something that you teach people to do either. We get a great deal of insight into Paul's mind with this characteristic, and we see it here beginning in chapter 1 of verse 3. Chapter, verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's get that right. He begins the phrase with this, the, the verse with this phrase, for this reason, but he doesn't get to the reasons until verses 13 and 14. And everything in between there is a long aside. This is how Paul's worshipful mind worked. He begins to say one thing, but a theological truth sidetracks him. Sometimes for several verses at a time. We saw that in that long extended run-on sentence in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, right? One thing led to another, led to another, led to another, led to another. Then he comes back to the original subject. He's been celebrating in the end of chapter 2, the creation of a new people out of believing Jews and Gentiles. They're no longer Jews, no longer Gentiles, they're Christians, which leads him to want to thank God and to pray for that wonderful mystery. That's the reason in the for this reason in verse 1. But he gets sidetracked by the mystery of this union, how it came about, how it was hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament, in verses 2 to 12. And then he begins his, for this reason, and he prays in verses 13 and 14. Now, you can understand the flow of thought if you read it like this. For this reason, then skip down to verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory, and I pray to the Father. I bow my knees to the Father in verse 14. So he says, for this reason, I'm going to pray, the Jew-Gentile incredible union, but before he can pray, for this reason to pray, he comes back and repeats himself actually in verse 14 because everything in between there is an aside. It's an amazing aside that we're going to be looking at next week. But notice, Paul begins with prayer for this reason, and he'll pick up the prayer, the intercession in verse 13 and 14. He's concerned that the that the people would wrongly interpret his incarceration and doubt God's sovereignty. Well, wait a minute. You're, you're blessed of God. You're an apostle of God. You're the one who's giving us God's message, and you're in jail? Why should we believe you? How can we believe you? What caused them to doubt God's sovereignty, God's goodness, God's care for Paul and the Ephesians? That's why he encouraged them not to be discouraged because of his sufferings, because actually his sufferings were going to work out for their benefit. We'll come back to that when we get to the end of the chapter. Don't miss the subtle lesson here, though. Paul is about to refer to his being in prison. But his difficult circumstance did not keep him from praying for his friends. In fact, I think if Paul were here today, he would tell you that he had more time to pray because he was in prison. God actually put him in a place where he had extra time to pray. I remember talking to a woman who was in the last months of her life. She was bedridden. 
And I was asking her, how's her heart? How, how are you doing? And she said, what a gift it is that I can't do anything but pray. How can I pray for you today, Pastor Rick? That's perspective. And it's powerful. The specific intercession is that they would not lose heart over his suffering. See the circle here? I don't want you to be worried about my difficult circumstances. I'm praying that you're freed up from that worry so you can be faithful where you are. We're left with an amazing example here. When facing a difficulty, are you able and willing to pray for others? We'll come back to that in verses 13 and 14. So just kind of hold that as a placekeeper in your mind. But he did begin with selfless, well, I should say, he began with the idea of selfless intercession, and then he gets the sidetracked, and he'll come back to that in verses 13 and 14. But the majority of what we're going to be devoting our attention to this morning is his second concentration. Not only selfless intercession, but the second concentration for enduring difficulty is this, theological awareness. And let me just say from the very beginning, if we can learn from Paul here, this example, Paul's instruction here, might be the most singular, singularly the most helpful self-biblical counseling you can ever apply to your heart. Having theological awareness in difficulties, in trials, in unwelcome circumstances. He says, I, Paul... The prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, first, Paul reminds us, reminds the readers, rather, that he's the author. Now, I'm stating the obvious to remind you that there are some liberal commentators who don't believe Paul wrote Ephesians. And let me remind you that you have to go to school and learn from someone to believe that the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It says that Paul wrote it, so I think we should probably believe that Paul wrote it. Then Paul calls himself something that's the key to our lesson this morning. He tells us that at the time of his writing, when he's in Rome, incarcerated, under house arrest, with a sword at a Roman guard's waist, ready to dispatch him if he ran, that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Well, footnote, this is not the only time he does this. Four other times he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus in Philemon 1 and in Philemon 9. He calls himself a prisoner of the Lord in Ephesians 4.1. His prisoner in 2 Timothy 1.8. And later in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 20, he'll describe himself as an ambassador in chains. What does he mean by this? What does it mean? Well, Harold Honer gives us an insight. Dr. Honer is going to guide us grammatically through the rest of Ephesians. He is such a brilliant scholar. He says the genitives, which is the of, of Christ Jesus, denote not only possession, he's a prisoner of, possessed by Christ Jesus, but they also denote cause. He's a prisoner for Christ Jesus and the cause of Christ Jesus. It was the cause of Christ that made him the prisoner in the first place. Why is this such a big deal? Well, I think it's a big deal because nowhere, think about this, nowhere in any of Paul's writings does he ever refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome 
or a prisoner of Nero or a prisoner of Caesar. He never says that. Every time he says, I'm a prisoner, and he gives a designate of who is in charge of the prison, it's of Jesus. Remember our study of his circumstances way back at the beginning of Ephesians. Paul was charged by the Jews with sedition or treason against the emperor. Therefore, he was arrested and eventually remanded to the oversight of the palace guard, actually the personal bodyguard of the emperor, and eventually transferred from Caesarea Mamertine up by the coast where he was for two years and through a long circumstance ends up getting to Rome where he was a prisoner for two more years under Nero where he would stand trial for being a preacher of the gospel. However, it's striking, it's stunning that in all his prison epistles, that's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, he never once says that he's a prisoner of Rome or Caesar. It's always a prisoner of Christ Jesus. How could he say this? How could he believe this? How could this be true? Wouldn't Jesus want him out of prison and traveling and preaching and pastoring? Paul understood and Paul believed that the one who was ultimately sovereignly controlling his life and the details in the long look at his life was Jesus, not Caesar. His being in prison the duration of his incarceration was not determined by Caesar. It was determined by God, by Jesus Christ. I hope this gives your mind a flashback and a reminder to Jesus himself. John, 8, John 19, Jesus shows up before Pilate. Let me just read you this account. John 19, verse 1, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium back in private and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, you would have no authority 
over me unless it had been given to you from above. In these 11 verses, there's a power play going on. The Jews want Jesus crucified, but they have no political power to do so. Pilate has the political power, but he doesn't have the will to do it. And he's actually trying to say to Jesus, if you'll, if you'll give me an out, I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll save you. I have authority to save your life. I have authority to crucify you. And Jesus says, you're so mistaken. You think you have authority, but you don't. God has ultimate authority over every nuance of my life, my death. Paul understood that Jesus was in control of his history, his life, his death, his personal itinerary. We'll look at this more next week, but how would you like for God's will to be this? Paul, everywhere you go, it's going to be chains and persecution and beatings and suffering. And one of these times, they're going to kill you. Thank you. How's that for God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? We find out a little bit about Paul's resume I know you know this well, but listen again to Paul's understanding of God's governance of his life. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, speaking about the false prophets. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number, more times than he could count. Often, in danger of death. Five times, I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times, I was beaten with rods. Once, I was stoned. Three times, I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, bobbing around in the ocean. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentile, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food in cold and exposure, and apart from such external things, there is daily the pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Let's stop here for a moment. Are you, as a Christian, confident that the Lord Jesus is truly Jesus the Lord is Jesus ever wringing his hands and saying, I wish, I wish it was going better for my son or my daughter. I, I, I wish I could do something. I, I wish they weren't having trials. I wish this wasn't a tough moment for them. Is he really Lord? The simple designation of Paul saying he's Christ's prisoner 
gives us an incredible life-altering power of perspective from Paul's heart. I mean, think about how we look at the world, how Paul was looking at the world. Are you ever troubled by what politicians and political parties, what Washington or China or Russia are doing? Do you ever wonder, uh, what's going to happen? Who's Lord? Who is really Lord? Who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Does our trust in the Lord impact our view of the world? How about this? Are you troubled by personal trials that seem to victimize you? Oh, there are certainly victims of circumstance. Certainly there are that, but there's no victim of sovereignty. God's grace and sovereign purposes can trump and triumph over any trial. Do you have a theology for difficulties? I said before, most counseling that I've ever done is dealing with, with folks who are having a difficulty. And praise God that we get to talk about those things. I don't, I don't begrudge that at all. I'm, I'm very thankful. That's what we sign up for as, as spiritual leaders. But it all comes down to this. Do you have a theology for difficulty? Do you have a theology that can sustain you when things that you don't want to happen, happen? Or when things that you want to happen, don't happen? Do you have a theology that will sustain you in those moments? As Jeremiah watched Jerusalem burn to the ground, witnessed the temple literally be dismantled stone by stone, probably sitting on the Mount of Olives looking across and watching the temple on fire. He penned a series of lament poems, five of them actually, and we have those contained in the book of Lamentations. In Lamentations 3, he really comes to the high point of his theological reflection in a staccato series of three simple questions. Now these are not questions in the proper sense of the idea of asking a question and wanting an answer. Like when your wife asks you to wear, or are you going to wear that shirt with those pants? That's not a question. It's a statement. Um, yesterday, we have guests coming over tonight, and I had some hunting gear out in the dining room, which makes sense to me because I've got to use it next week, and it doesn't need to go downstairs. But my wife asked me very graciously, very sweetly, in a gentle, loving voice, Honey, are you going to put away your hunting gear before our guests come over? Folks, that was not a question. <laughs> that was a statement. Move your hunting stuff downstairs. Well, Jeremiah asks three questions that are not statements, that are not questions, they are statements. Lamentations 3.37, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Nebuchadnezzar had spoken, I will come and destroy you. And he did. And it looked like Nebuchadnezzar was large and in charge and sovereign. But Jeremiah asked, who, personal, who is there? What person is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? What does that tell us? That's a statement that God is in control over people. 
He asks the second question. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill, it says calamity, it's the same word that Job asked, shall we not accept good and ill from the Lord? Go forth. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that those come forth? God is not only sovereign over people, God is sovereign over circumstances. He's sovereign over every cell in this, every cell in our body and every atom in our universe. Why should any living mortal or any man offer up complaint in view of his sins? In other words, when you realize that I provided a way of salvation, you have nothing to complain about, says the Lord. God is sovereign over people. God is sovereign over circumstances, and God is serious about our response. Those are the three statements from those three questions. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of the world's reflex to suffering. This was Jeremiah at the lowest point in his life. He had for 40 years said, repent or God will judge. Repent or God will judge. Please repent or God's coming to judge. They didn't repent and God judged A lesser man would have said, I told you so. Jeremiah said, God's still in control. A Christian's right response to troubles, to suffering, to difficulties, to undesired circumstances, even to persecutions, will get the attention of the world around us. Remember, we don't grieve as the world grieves, we don't suffer loss like the world suffers loss. We don't lose as the world loses. We don't endure hardship as the world endures hardship. We don't bury our loved ones as the world buries their loved ones. We don't get sick and we don't die as the world gets sick and as the world dies. Why? Christians have a settled joy in difficulties and circumstances But we have that subtle joy only, only when we see God's invisible hand in the glove of our troubling circumstances. Difficulty and suffering, they bring us to God. Just like Asaph, in his distressful time in Psalm 73, we can find that in in our troubles, the nearness of God is our what? Good So a Christian does not seek out tribulation or trouble, but responds differently to it than someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that with Paul saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm not outside God's will. He's the one in charge. In fact, I go straight through Nero, straight to Christ. He is the one who has me in prison. Why is that so hard for us to see? Why is that so hard for us to believe? Horatius Bonner, we've looked at this before, tells us exactly why. It's because we doubt God's character. Horatius Bonner isolates the real issue with these words. It was in a sermon that he wrote many, many years ago. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. Let me say it again. Man's dislike at God's sovereignty arises from his suspicion of God's heart. 
Let's say it another way. If God is sovereign and not good, that's no comfort. If God is good and not sovereign, that's no comfort. But our God is sovereign and he's good. To believe in God's sovereignty without a parallel confidence in God's goodness will provide no comfort or consolation in our difficulties. Psalm 119 verse 68, you are good and you do good. What God is doing during our trials, during our difficulties, is an expression of his goodness, even if we don't see and taste it at first. And it's critical for us to remember that he is good, he's doing good in the midst of our difficulties. Psalm 119 also says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your statutes. We know this. What a gift to know that God is good, that God cares, that God is doing, that God is involved. What a gift to know that. Remember, think back to Abraham, Genesis 22. Go take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. There's a lot of descriptors there. Go to Mount Moriah and offer him as a, as a sacrifice. Go kill your son. The first verse in that chapter says, God tested Abraham, but Abraham didn't know God was testing him. Think of Job. He loses his children, his grandchildren, his fame, his fortune, his reputation. He loses his possessions, his money, his ways to make money. He loses his health. He loses the support of his dear wife. But he doesn't know that Satan and God had a conversation that allowed that to happen. Listen, <laughs> you and I know what God is doing and what God is like. What a grace to be able to interpret our difficulties knowing why these things are happening. We continue to return over and over since we studied this many years ago to our study of Romans, Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then Paul says, and we rejoice, we're happy, we exult in hope of the glory of God. We have a great hope that God is going to bring us glory, probably at the resurrection, at glorification, when we go to be with him. We have the hope of heaven. That's fantastic. We have the hope of heaven. Then he says this, not only do we have the hope of heaven, but we also exult, we rejoice in our tribulations. That's crazy. Unless you have the next word, the next word dictates it all. Not only do we rejoice in the hope of heaven, but we also rejoice in our tribulations. Here's the word, knowing, knowing. And then he tells us what God is doing. The tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Paul tells us what he exemplifies, that if you know, if you know, if you have your theology intact and your knowing is where it should be, then no circumstance can take away your joy. 
And we've said all along, since that sermon way back in Romans 5 many years ago, we asked three questions, right? What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Life is lived, and what do I think? So if we go, what do I feel? I feel terrible. I feel anxious. I feel angry. I feel um, scared. Uh, I'm fearful about the future. I'm fearful about what's going on. I have all these emotions. I feel this way. What do you think? I think things are not going to go well because of how I feel. We have to get to Paul's word, knowing what do we believe, what do we know. Theology matters. A theology of trials matters. Paul had that, which is why he said, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The realities of heaven and hell bring evil and suffering, difficulties into sharp focus. Randy Alcorn has rightly said, for Christians, this present life is the closest they will ever come to hell. Think about that. But for unbelievers, it's the closest they will ever come to heaven. God then uses troubles and difficulties in our lives, culminating in the inevitability of our own deaths, to pry our grips off this world and refocus our hearts on Him, on heaven, on what lies ahead. One of my favorite insights I've ever read is from Morris Roberts outside of Scripture, who says this, the degree of a, of a Christian's peace of mind depends upon his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. Can I read that again? The degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends upon his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. And if a believer can keep his mind on God, no evil, no trial, no difficulty in this world can steal our joy or our peace. And that'll be enough until heaven. The reason Paul could say, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, is because he believed that Christ was in charge and he knew Christ to be good. If you know what God is like and you know that God is doing something, you can endure any difficulty. Three concentrations for enduring difficulties, selfless intercession, theological awareness, and third, this is very brief, ministry focus, because in the next six verses, we're going to talk about this with Paul. For the sake of you Gentiles, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, because of you Gentiles. It's a simple but important concentration. Instead of complaining and pining away in prison, he devoted his efforts toward ministry. This is what he's going to explain in the next five verses, by the way. Let me say it very simple. Head start for next week. Serving others is a divine anesthetic for the pain of difficulty, of suffering. Serving others is a divine anesthetic for the pain of suffering, the pain of difficulties. 
Interestingly, this is the only time in Paul's letters where he says he was in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. Next week, we'll look at Paul's special mission to the Gentiles. We're going to learn that his mission to the Gentiles was what landed him in prison in the first place. For now, just know that he spent four years in prison, two in Caesarea, two in Rome. But his imprisonment in Rome afforded him the opportunity to write letters to the churches and to pray for them. Paul was in difficult circumstances because of his faithful ministry. But the principle of understanding God's sovereign, loving control still applies even if we're not suffering for ministry reasons. Just the suffering of being a part of life. Peter addresses this. And he says, make sure that, he says, basically there's three ways to suffer. You suffer because of God, faithfulness. You suffer because of life. Or you suffer because you did something wrong. Listen to what he says. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. We know what Abraham didn't. We know what Job didn't. That God is testing us. God is perfecting us. God is doing things. He's sanctifying us. But to the degree that you share the sufferings... Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped a part. part. Comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He actually says, don't think it's weird if you suffer. This is normal. Before I go on, if there were never any troubles or suffering in this world, would anyone want to go to heaven? But to the degree, verse 13, that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not able to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. What is he saying? Look, life's going to give you curveballs and things that give you anxiety that are just a part of living in a broken world. And we got to learn to deal with that. There's a theology for that. But also he's saying, don't be in trouble. Don't suffer because you're doing wrong things, because you're sinning. Make sure that our difficulties are generated by righteousness and not sin. That's the point. Paul's a prisoner of the Lord for the sake of the Gentiles, which we're going to expand on next week. 1675, Bedford, England a name that you're very familiar with, a man named John Bunyan was arrested for preaching publicly, are you ready for this, without a license. And he was jailed for six months. Bunyan had previously spent 12 years in prison during which he had written many books, many pamphlets. At any time during that 12 years, he could have gotten out of jail if he promised not to preach again. And he said, no, keep me in prison. Like God, like Paul rather, he saw God's invisible hand in the glove of his circumstances. Now he's in prison for six more months. And commenting on that time in prison, he said this, I've been away from my writing too long. Maybe this is not so much a prison as it is an office 
from which I can reach the world with Christ's message. During that six months, he wrote a little book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you see, maybe I should ask to say, will you see God's invisible hand in your troubling circumstances? Will you believe that he's there, that he's good, that he's involved, and that he cares, that he knows about all your pain, that he knows about your circumstances, that he has not left you or forsaken you as an orphan? Do you see his invisible hand? Do you trust that he's doing something? Which leads me to a second question. Are you aware that God is actively doing things in and for you in your difficulties? Are you aware that God is actively doing things in and for you in your difficulties? He is. Paul told us we can rejoice in our tribulations knowing, knowing that God is doing something. What a privilege we have that Abraham and Job did not have. We know what God is doing. Read Romans 5, read James 1, 1 to 12. Thirdly, will you believe that God is good and always doing good with you and for you? Will you believe that he's good? Will you remember that he's good? God has never said whoops in his existence. He's never said, "Uh uh-oh. He's good and doing good. All in our life is to sanctify the believer to be like Christ. And if you're not a Christian, all your difficulties are to remind you of what you need in a loving Savior who may not rescue you from all the troubles of this world. In fact, he won't, but he will give you hope for eternity. And that's much longer than this life. I hope your eternity is secure through the gospel. I hope you believe what God is like. Full disclosure, I uh, was finishing this sermon up on Friday and I thought God is bringing us to this passage and this subject to equip us which made me swallow really hard and say, I wonder what he's equipping us for. And I had a brief moment of anxiety until I remembered what the passage is about. (laughs) He is good. He does good. He's sovereign and he's trustworthy. What a God we have. I hope you know him. And if you don't, don't leave the building without doing so, because we can introduce you to a loving Savior who will care for your soul and your life in this world and prepare you for an eternity with him by forgiving your sins and giving you hope, hope to go to heaven. And we'd love to talk to you about that. Father, give us the power of perspective. Forgive us for not trusting. Forgive us for our anxieties. Forgive us for forgetting that you are good and you do good.
Thank you for these reminders. Oh, Father, thank you for the example of our dear brother, Paul, languishing in prison and seeing himself as a prisoner of his Lord Jesus. Give us eyes to see with better theological understanding. Protect us from being swayed by the events of a wicked, awful, and evil world away from what we know to be true in you and for us. In Jesus' name, amen.